good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, the book of Jude is where we'll be. We'll be working through verse 3 today. When I began the book of Jude, my plan was to preach about 12 sermons. So far, that does not seem like it's going to happen. Um, with that being said, Jude 3 is one of those golden texts. It's rather unique. I imagine the vast majority of you have heard the phrase, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Um, that phrase has a new and perhaps more gravitous meaning to me as I've labored in this text. I told a couple of friends that my Baptist is intensifying as I'm working through the book of Jude. Um, and the reason that's the case is because we have been given a faith that has been deli- delivered to us. Um, and one of, the, one of the paramount dispositions of the Christian is holding dear that which God has given. And so what I'm convinced that Jude is doing is he's pushing forward into this letter as he's really laying the groundwork of what he wants to accomplish. You really have two things at play, and my hope is to work out both of them this morning. The two major things that we see laid out in just this simple verse of verse three is a desire to have fellowship, a desire to participate and to interact around the common salvation that Jude has with all those who are called, all those who are beloved in God and who are kept for Jesus Christ. You can see as he writes, there's a, there's a joy in this first verse as we enter into the main section of the, of the text. There's a joy and a desire to commune, to fellowship with the people of God around that which we have in common, namely our salvation. And then there is an appeal. And the appeal is that we would, that the church would be about contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered. And so what I'd like to do as we walk through this is I first want to lay out what's the grounds, what's the fountain that leads Jude to tell us he desires fellowship and communion around the common salvation. And then simultaneously, what is it that leads us or leads him better yet to urge the saints to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. And I'm convinced we find that in the very first word of verse three. With that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jude, starting in verse three, we'll make our way through verse four. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jude Jude 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, We come today setting you aside as Lord. Lord, we'd make no bones about it. We have one who is king. We have one who we submit to. We have one that we aim to please with our very breath. And Father, I pray that as we come to this text, that you would remind us of the sweetness of the church, that we have a common salvation. Lord, would you drive us to one another in the midst of this wonderful gift of God that we have in common? And then further, Lord, would you remind us, uh, appeal to us even this morning in our spirits to go about contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Father, may we never cede ground. May we never grow lax with this. May we cling to it and hold it tightly as that which we cherish most. And Lord, may we be fierce in our defense of it. We believe that you will stand to the end of the age. We believe your church will persevere. We believe that she will be brought safely home. But Lord, we ask, would you help us to be found faithful as we wait? Lord, give us a zeal, give us a joy, give us a thrill in contending for the faith. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So before we dive into really what is the the paramount portions of this text, we need to understand where it flows from. And this is really, really important to our understanding of Jude's heart. And then secondarily, I think what love actually does in the life of the Christian. 
And so the very first thing we need to ask is like, what can we actually glean from the simple introduction, the simple statement that he makes where he simply says, beloved, he's introducing this and he's essentially attributing a unique affection to those who were called going back really to verse one, where he identifies them as those who were called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. Essentially what Jude is considering here for a moment is the deep love that he has for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And again, I don't think he's making reference to necessarily to a particular church, but instead he's making reference to the church universal, all of those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and ultimately will be kept for the day of salvation. And so he writes this, and as he's writing, he begins the letter, and I'm really convinced that what takes place in verse 3 is Jude sits down with the intention to write about the common salvation that he has with the whole church of God. And as he's writing that, love ultimately leads him by inspiration of the Spirit in a different direction. But nonetheless, we're given a view of, frankly, two roads that love ultimately leads Jude down. And so what can we understand by the simple word, beloved? First, we must understand this as an expression of love, first and foremost, towards the church. Jude has a deep affection for the church of God. And saints, this should be the natural disposition of anyone who claims to be a Christian. If we claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is rather simple that in our love for Jesus Christ, we will love his bride, or perhaps even further, that we will love his body. It's an incredibly difficult conundrum to say, I love the head and hate the body. I love the groom, but I hate the bride. I think we all know where that ultimately lands us. If you tell me that you love me while you hate my bride, I don't want to be your friend. As a general rule, she's my cherished, prized blessed wife. And if you come against her, you're against me outright. And the reality is that as we are understanding and thinking about the love that Jude has, it flows first and foremost from his union with Christ. And then secondarily, the reality that it's not just Jude who is united to Christ. It's not just pastors or teachers or elders who are united to Jesus Christ. The reality is that every single individual who has been called by the grace of God in Christ is united with him. There is a commonality. There is a wonderful thread of love that runs from one Christian to the other based upon the fact that we have something wonderful in common. Secondly, we must understand that this term beloved lays out to us that which animates this letter. It is love that ultimately sparked this letter. It was his intention to write in an endearing and in a loving fashion to those who he loved dearly. Now, perhaps it is, if you're thinking through verse three, you'll notice that one route seems to be a point of fellowship and a point of intimacy, celebrating and rejoicing in a common salvation. And then the other route is a rather abrupt I was eager to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I felt it necessary as it goes on to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. And here's what I really want to lay out for us here. Both of those desires flow from the very same fountain. It is not as though Jude began this letter thinking and meditating upon his love for the church and how he wanted to celebrate and rejoice in the common salvation that he had. And then a new affection overtook him. And then he went on to contend for the faith that was to once, and all, once and for all to be delivered to the saints. Pardon me. Love is the anchor point of both of these. It's not as though they're divorced from one another in the very same way that as a father's hands are animated by love to hold his children closely, to love them, to protect them. It is that very same love that makes his hands violent to protect them. As I consider the love that I have for my very daughter, one of the first things that hit me as I held her was, my goodness, I just realized how violent I am able to be. Because there's instantly this desire of, I, I'm willing to protect her at whatever cost. And that love gives birth to a bit of contending. It gives birth to even, I would say, a bit of violence with the willingness to say, you will not harm that which I love. And so with the same love I nurture and the very same love, perhaps it is that I would give myself to a bit of violence for the purpose of protecting that which God has entrusted to me. So we need to understand as we walk into this that the very same fountain that leads you to say, I want to rejoice in the common salvation, leads him to say that I want you to contend. I want you to wage war so as to protect that which is most precious. And so let's look a little bit further here then. Look at the first statement that we find here. I was eager to, uh, to write. 
It says this, rather simple phrase, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. The very first thing that love creates in Jude, and I would argue in the life of the Christian, is it creates a desire for fellowship within the church. Because why is it that Jude has any desire to write at all? There has to be some animating factor to have him sit down and to begin to write a letter with the intention of admonishing and encouraging the church. I would actually go so far as to say it is not just his intention to admonish the church, it is his intention to fellowship with the church. Certainly there is a desire in any sense, if we love someone, there is a desire to fellowship with them. There's a desire to be in their presence. And in this particular circumstance, Jude is not to be present in person, but in pen. But nonetheless, we need to understand that if we say that we have a love for Christ and we have a love for the common salvation that we have, it should animate us and ultimately lead us into faithful fellowship with those that have the very same salvation that we delight in. And so he goes on, I'm very eager to write to you. I'm very eager to have fellowship with you. And the full ramification of love is that there would actually be a presence one with another. And I would argue that love is complete in tota when there is true and lasting fellowship between those that have something in common, between those that have a common love, a common salvation in this particular sense. And so as Jude's meditating upon this, his thought is, I love these saints and I want to write to them that there might be some fellowship. And I think 1 John kind of helps us bridge the gap to some degree. The purpose in John's writing is that his joy might be complete. And in the very same sense, there is a completeness of joy when we are rejoicing together in the common salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps it is from time to time you will notice that as you As you recoil for whatever reason from the life of the congregation, you will notice that your joy seems to be lacking or your fellowship with Christ seems to be somewhat not as sweet. That that should not be a surprise to anyone because a way in which God communicates his love is through the life of the local church. What an encouraging letter this must have been to receive for this church to be admonished, to be encouraged by this apostle Jude as he comes and he writes. What blessing must it have been to open the book of Romans and know that not only has God spoken, there is one who shares the common salvation that we have, who desires to write and to fellowship with us. You'll notice in pretty much every epistle that whoever is writing is saying, I long to be with you. And we rejoice for the distance that existed in those days, that these blessed letters would be inspired and given to us. But saints, we must not miss the heart behind these letters. There is a true love, a true affection, and ultimately a true desire of fellowship. But not fellowship over lesser things. What was the primary desired grounds of this fellowship that Jude longed for? It wasn't in him being Jewish. It wasn't in his familial ties, though he had perhaps the most excellent of all. It wasn't anchored in past friendships. It wasn't anchored in any lesser thing. Instead, the text is quite clear. He was eager to write to this church about our common salvation. That the primary thing that Jude wanted to fellowship over was the common salvation that he had with all the other saints of God. And this is something that we need to understand. When we speak of our union with Christ, when we speak about all the blessings of the salvation that we have in him, we are speaking of something that is common to all of the saints. And in that commonality, there is great unity. And so, but but let's build this out for a moment because there's two phrases here that I think often get meshed together to where we really don't understand either really well. The first phrase that you'll find in this verse is common salvation. Oftentimes it is conflated with the latter phrase, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I'm not convinced the intention of Jude was to conflate these two things. I'm convinced that what is actually being laid out here is first and foremost, the experience of salvation, the common salvation that we have. And perhaps it is you hear the word experience and you instantly think, oh good, we're going to talk about our emotive response to salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is shared experience that was purchased by the blood of Christ that every single saint of God participates in. And I want to lay those out for you because this is the real ground. This is the common salvation that we possess, which means that when you grab another Christian, regardless of the moment in life, regardless that they are on their deathbed, regardless that they are going through great tribulation and trial, or if they are in the heights of joy, we say we share this. This is the common ground. This is where both of our feet are always touching. 
And I want to lay out some of those to you because this experience, this enjoyment of promised realities, if we understand it appropriately, gives us wonderful grounds for unity inside the life of the church. So first, let's just walk through a couple couple of things that we all have in common with one another in this common salvation that has been provided for us. First, that we have been adopted into the same family. And I want you to notice, you'll hear the phrase one and same a number of times as we walk through this. Galatians 3.25 says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The common salvation that we share is ultimately a common adoption. What table do you sit at, saint? Do you think that this table is divided? That it's ultimately a table of separation? No, it is a table of unity. Every time we come to this table, we are essentially arguing in some symbolic fashion that we will dine at the very same table. We will sit together, we will worship together, we will delight in Christ together. The table of Jesus Christ is not a divided table, it is a table of great unity. And so when we say that we've been adopted into the family of God, it means that I sit inside of that blessed household of faith called the church and I fellowship with my brothers and sisters from across time and space. It's the same family that we've been adopted into. Further, we say that we are placed in the very same body, Romans 12, 4. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. We are participants in the very same body. When I say that I have a common salvation, it is ultimately arguing that I live in a common body under the headship of Jesus Christ and every saint, past, present, and future belongs to this body. What a wonderful ground of commonality. What a wonderful ground of unity to know the same head that commands and animates my life does the very same in all of my Christian brethren in all of the world. That as I am commanded, so is every other saint. We are united in one body. This is our common salvation. Or perhaps we go further, that we are indwelled by the very same Holy Spirit. Not pieces and parts of the Holy Spirit, mind you. It is not to say that every individual gets somewhat of a fraction of a percent of the Holy Spirit. It is to say that the third person of the Godhead truly and fully indwells each and every Christian. This is the common experience of salvation. 2 Corinthians 1.21, And it is God who establishes us with, with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 4.4 begins to argue, and we'll look at this throughout the rest of this section. Ephesians 4.4, there's one body and there is one spirit. Saints, when you look at your brother or sister in Christ, you are not looking at a different spirit indwelling them. You are looking at the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them. They possess the very same thing that seals you. The life that's being given to you is the very same life that is being given to them. It is not different in its substance. It is perfectly, perfectly harmonious in its substance. There is no distinction. So as the Holy Spirit of God is giving life to my mortal body, it is giving life to every single Christian's mortal body. What a sweet ground of fellowship that you have in common with no one else other than the Christian. When we look at our friends around us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize the reality that the Spirit of God does not dwell in them that there is something unique and wonderful that we possess because of the finished work of Christ and because of the sealing of the Spirit that they do not. This gives us ground to have deeper fellowship within the church than can even be imagined outside of it. So we are indwelled by the same Spirit. We hold fast to the same hope. Ephesians 4, 4, yet again, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Blessed be the God and Father, according to 1 Peter 1, 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And perhaps it is that you would wonder, ah, there's various hopes of the Christian life. Saints, there's not various hopes of the Christian life. The singular hope of the Christian life is Christ and him crucified, and he comes back for us. This is the hope of the Christian life. 
And this is the hope in the Christian life for the one who has been converted 36 seconds and the Christian who is laying on her deathbed awaiting her last breath. The same hope is holding both of them fast. They're rejoicing in the fact that Christ is sufficient. They're rejoicing that Christ will ultimately see all of his people brought safely home. And the unique thing about this is, no matter where you find yourself on the Christian, in, in the Christian life, we still hold fast to that one hope. There's no graduation from this. Every single thing that we're mentioning here is frankly a wonderful stagnant or consistent point of the Christian life. It enters in at new birth and it remains for all eternity. So we have a wonderful hope that comes. This is part of our common salvation. Finally, we have one Lord, one Lord. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the body of the church. He is Lord. Saints, the reason this is so important is because we really do answer to one king. And this is why I think it is such a loss if we do not understand the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are glad-hearted when we speak of him as prophet and priest, and we should be. We should delight in his priestly role. We should rejoice that he is the true and better prophet. But saints, we must also be glad-hearted when we recognize him as king. He is the Lord, the sovereign, the ruler of the church. And this is a reality for every single member of this body. They bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. This is our common salvation under the common head that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say we have one Lord and we rejoice that this wonderful Lord is the very same Lord who came to ransom us with his blood. Not only is he a sovereign ruler, he is a wonderful shepherd. And so we say we have one Lord. This is a common ground of our salvation. And then we confess the same faith. That is to say, one ground of belief and trust. Hear me. No Christian has ever been saved with a divergent faith. Faith is not, we speak of this often, faith is not salvific in and of itself. Faith is only as strong as its object. And if you have another object than the Lord Jesus Christ, then hear me, your faith is not salvific. Only faith in Christ is ultimately salvific. Because he actually is mighty to save. When you say that you are saved by faith alone, what you are ultimately saying is I am saved by Christ alone and faith is the means by which I lay hold of him. And so we say we have one faith. This is the common factor in the life of the church. When we speak of faith, we are speaking of a dependence, a relying on, a laying hold of Jesus Christ. And this is the common ground of salvation that we have with every Christian that has ever been called Christian. Further, we share in the same baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have one baptism. As Ephesians 4 makes abundantly clear, this is to indicate that there actually is a baptism that is given to the life of the church. And saints, we should rejoice both in the substance of that baptism, namely being brought into, being immersed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then secondarily receiving the sign that indicates that we have been brought into Jesus Christ. There's one baptism in which we go on preaching and rejoicing in. Further, we have the same Father. Even going back to our very first point of adoption, Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The uniqueness of the Christian's cry is that it is both the same in what is said and to whom it is being delivered. When we cry, Abba, Father, I am not looking at an earthly father. I am not looking at a lesser God. I am looking at the Father, the one who is revealed in Holy Scripture, the one who Jesus is the perfect image of. And I'm saying, Abba, Father. And that is the cry of every Christian. The cry of every single individual is, I have the same Father, which means brothers and sisters, the term brothers and sisters is not a void term. It is filled with meaning. It is why often we should withhold the term, but we give it and we give it to such a degree not to say that I have commonality with you based upon something intrinsic in me, but instead we have the same father. 
He belongs to me. I belong to him. You belong to me. We dine at the same table. All of his riches are given to you the same way they're given to me. Therefore, when we say brother or sister, it is not light. And hear me, if you don't utilize the term brother and sister, I would like to implore you, begin. Begin. There is no sweeter phrase that you can offer to one in the faith than brother or sister. And it is a means by which we reclaim the familiarity, as it were, of the church. Further, we have one joy. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, I think really brings this together for us. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. We have one joy, one unifying joy. And saints, the beauty of this is, Perhaps it is that you have found yourself in particular moments of your life when you feel as, the, as if the laying hold of this joy, your hands are frail and they're not laying hold of that joy appropriately. The good news is every single individual you call brother or sister can help you lay hold of that yet again. Because it's the very same joy that they possess. It's the very same thing that they rejoice in. They look forward to the return of Christ. The joy that is anchored in their soul is not subjective. It is based upon objective reality. And as it's based upon objective reality, one of the great truths of the Christian life is that we possess and lay hold of the very same joy, which means that when my brother or sister needs to have joy refilled in him, I'm not going outside of that fountain. I'm simply pointing him right back to the fountain I'm drinking of. We have the same joy. Finally, I got two more, not finally. We have one testimony. And perhaps it is in this moment you're thinking, ah, all of our testimonies vary. And there's truth to that to some degree, meaning that there are distinctions, as it were, in, in, in what took place before we came to saving faith. And there's perhaps distinctions on the other side of saving faith that God is actively doing in our life. But hear me, the ground of every testimony is Christ and Him crucified. We have the same proclamation, which means that if you stand up to give your testimony and you're going to tell me how sinful you were before and how great you are now, we do not have the same testimony. The testimony is Christ and him crucified. One artist said it this way, that if you would like my testimony, you can simply read Ephesians 2. And this is the proclamation of the church, that we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Though I was dead, though I was an alien, though I was a stranger, Christ has brought me near and this is the ground of our testimony. This is the common testimony of the Christian. Not that I am savable or that I did a particular thing, but instead Christ has saved. Finally, we have one future resurrection. Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. Listen to this last phrase that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, this is one I will confess we wait on. Everything that I've just mentioned belongs to you today. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God the Father. But we await the one future resurrection. And if I could maybe supply you with a bit of joy that came to me as I was preparing this, there are ample beloved saints who have died that I look forward to laying eyes on again. They have not yet been glorified. Hear me, they are without sin, but we await the bodily resurrection. But hear me, I'll partake of that with them. I'll enjoy that bodily resurrection with them. Those precious saints in your life who you love and hold dear and you long to see, hear me, there is going to be a moment where our union will be that Christ will glorify and give bodily resurrection to all of his church at the very same moment. What a wonderful thrill it will be to look over perhaps, and sure this is speculation, but perhaps to look over and see dear brethren who I prayed for before they perished to see them raise again. We share in one future resurrection. This is the common ground of our salvation. It is the common salvation. It is that which is true of every single individual who professes faith in Christ. Now, here's what I want to essentially argue here. Our common salvation provides the most unique and greatest ground of fellowship. There is nothing that can be substituted for this. You can argue all of these different types of commonalities, but hear me, they are all left wanting. 
I love what Galatians 3, 28 through 29 says. I think it speaks really precisely to this very subject. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Our primary identifier, the ground of our fellowship is anchored in the fact that all of our secondary and tertiary identities burn as we say we belong to Christ. And this salvation that we have, this is the truest and best ground of unity that I can possibly have. And not only is it the truest and best ground of unity here, it is a unity that lasts eternally. What a sweet promise that we have. Now, to maybe wrap this point up, a love of this common salvation creates within us a love for the saints. If you say all of these things are true, if you delight in every single one of these, if those great truths ravished your soul, they belong to your brethren as well. And to say that I love this common salvation, but I don't like the ones I have it in common with is absolute folly. I can't imagine a world where we say, I love this great truth and hate the ones I share it with. We don't do that with secular junk. Our common ground, our common life, our common love flows from the fact that we have a common salvation. Now, Jude's appeal and desire to fellowship around this then turns. And I want to remind you, the fount has not changed. Love is still the anchor here. He loves this church. He longs for them to be strengthened. He longs to fellowship with them, but his turn is a rather unique one. But I want us to understand that it is the very same love that prompted eager fellowship that ultimately prompts this necessary appeal. Listen to what it says. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So how is it that love essentially prompts an appeal to contend? First, love protects saints. We understand this in its most basic forms. Love always aims to protect. Love aims to essentially say there's one around me who is in danger and my immediate reaction must be if I'm being loving is to protect them from said harm. Only a traitor or the worst of men sits on the guard wall, sees an army coming and takes a nap. Love prompts activity here. It says you must contend, you must wage war because you must protect. This contending for the faith is not just for your own soul. It's for the soul of all those around you. And if I would go further, it's for the glory of God. And so the aim here is that I want to protect because I love, which is the natural ramification of Jude's love to the church. And then finally, love naturally spurs and stirs to love and deeper good works. If I say that I love you all the while seeing you not contending for the faith, not waging war, and I do not aim to stir you up or to spur you to contend, then my demonstration of love is lackluster at best. No, love naturally aims and appeals for contending. Now, that leads us to ask, what is contending? And I want, I want to strengthen this word. First, it is struggling. That is, I'm wrestling. Colossians 1.29, Paul speaks of this in his ministry. He says, for this I toil, struggling, laboring with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That is to say, I'm laboring with the energy that Christ has provided me for my work. I'm laboring, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling. And then further, he, the, the, this is my favorite in John 18, 36, because here it is, ac is actually making reference to physical violence. John 18, 36, Jesus says, answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. The very same word that I might not be delivered over to the Jew, but my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying this concept of contending is a fighting, is a laboring, is a warring. And then further, Luke 13, 24, we see this word translated strive, strive to enter in through the narrow door. And so you've got this concept of all this really vigorous activity. It's not a, it's not a like an inward, I'm just pondering things. It's an outward working of saying, I'm going to contend, to fight, to struggle, to toil with all my might so that I can contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. But we are not contending arbitrarily. This word contending is not a call for us to be contentious with every human being we come in contact with. Instead, it is a contending for something rather specific. So what are we contending for? 
We are contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, first, to clarify, when I say the faith once and for all delivered, I'm not speaking of faith, that is, the means by which you lay hold of Christ, but instead, I'm speaking of all the truths that embody Christianity, that I'm speaking of the dogmatics of the faith. John Gill said it this way quite beautifully. This faith means the whole scheme of evangelical truths to be believed, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity and sonship of Jesus, the divinity and personality of the Spirit, what regards the state and condition of man by nature, as the doctrines of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, the corruption of nature, the impotence of men to that which is good, what concerns the acts of grace and the Father, Son, and Spirit, Towards men, who, towards men that are not good and upon the sons of man as the doctrines of everlasting love, eternal election, the covenant of grace, particular redemption, justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ, pardon and reconciliation by his blood, regeneration and sanctification by the grace of the spirit, final preservation, the resurrection of the dead and the future glory of the saints with Christ, end quote. What are we contending for? We are contending for the very substance of Christianity. Now, if I could build this out perhaps in a more precise way. His list, I think, is excellent. But to maybe bring it down to us for a moment, that means that we contend for, the, for our triune God. It means that we do not permit men to assault his glory by questioning his essence and being. It means that when we say God is love, we do not permit or allow men to assault and call him a God who hates in the sense that he does not possess, is not love altogether. It means when we speak of him in Trinity, we are saying that he is indeed three persons. He does not appear as such. He is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we also go on saying that God is one. We do not give up ground in regard to our triune God. We wage war. We contend for this, saints. And throughout the ages, from the very birth of Christendom, there have been men arguing against the Trinity. Saints, we are triune or we are not Christians. The reality is that we contend for these things. When men knock on your door as they do, you go out contending for the glory of God, that he is our triune God. Further, we contend for our triune God as the creator. This world does not belong to anyone else. It belongs to the one who created it. And we must never cede ground so as to say that, ah, this world simply came into existence by some mere accident. No, he is the creator. This is the foundation of not only our world, but our worldview. He is the creator. We contend for the image of God in man. There are so many who wage war and lessen this image, saints. We go on contending for these doctrines. We argue that man is created in the image of God, and we never give ground here. Should the moment we do, we instantly betray, frankly, the salvation that God has provided. We contend for the fallenness of man. And this perhaps is the most reprehensible of all doctrines to the, to the ears of the world. But we contend that men are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And should we ever give this away, then we are not contending with any fidelity. We teach very clearly what the Bible has revealed, and it has revealed a fallen man who is in need of a Savior. And we contend for every dot and tittle that is revealed about our Lord Jesus Christ. There is not a single thing that we give away. Should men assault and say, ah, the virgin birth is absolute folly. The virgin birth is necessary for your salvation. If he is not the virgin born son of God, then saints, he's in Adam. And he's in need of redemption. He, is, he cannot be his own federal head. And most certainly, we cannot be found in him. He is born of a virgin. We go on confessing and contending that he is truly God and truly man. The moment that you give away his true divinity, you make him incapable of satisfying the wrath of God. The moment you give away his true humanity, it makes him incapable of atoning for man. We go on contending that he lived perfectly, as absolutely insane that is. We can't fathom such a thing that a man lives his whole life without sin and simultaneously being perfectly obedient to the Father, meriting perfect righteousness. But our whole world is built upon this reality. Past that, God has revealed it as such. And so we go on contending that Christ is made like us in every way, yet without sin. We go on contending that this true God, true man laid down his life for his people that this true and better shepherd truly did 
go to the cross, was crucified and died on that tree. And he did so not under the weight of the crown of thorns, but under the weight of the wrath of God. He laid down his life for his people. And if it were not so, if he were not willing, then it would not have occurred because no one can take his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And we go on professing and contending for his bodily resurrection. We say that this one who was crucified that was nailed to the tree, he was raised on the third day. I'm not speaking in figurative language. That body raised from the grave. And he conquered death, triumphing over it, not only for himself, but for all those who would believe in him. We contend for a bodily resurrection. And men can go on saying people don't raise from the dead. He did. Further, we contend for the reality that he ever lives to mediate for us. We know of his life Post his resurrection and ascension, he mediates for us. He is always making prayers for us. And so we go on contending that even in this moment, saints, the Savior prays for you, aiming to strengthen you that you might live the Christian life with fidelity and that you might make it safely home. And then finally, we boldly contend for the fact that he is with us until the end of the age. He belongs to us. And when men come and assail us and say, where is the power of the church? I will say it is in the hands of Christ Jesus and he reigns with us. He rules over us. He is with us until the end of the age and that wonderful commission that he has given will ultimately be brought to fruition because he is with us. Further, we contend for justification by faith alone. No matter how many times this doctrine is assailed, saints, we must be prepared to give an answer that it is not based upon anything that we have done or will do. It is based completely upon Christ and Christ alone. And the means by which we lay hold of him is not church attendance. It's not fidelity to the law. It's laying hold of Jesus and saying he is everything. He is able to save to the uttermost. This is the gospel that we preach and we must labor in contending for it. Justification by faith alone. It it matters not what the cults and sects say. Jesus is enough. He's enough and he justifies perfectly. Further, we contend for progressive and positional sanctification. One of the great foundations, frankly, of this church was arguing that Jesus sanctifies his people that he not only has positionally set them as saints, but he will work that out in them, conforming them to the image of his beloved son. Friends, this is not a lesser truth of the gospel. This is a promise of the gospel. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in perfection only on the last day. But hear me, saints, the spirit of God is not relaxing as he indwells you. He is ever constantly giving life to your mortal bodies. We contend for these things. We contend for the security of the believer, meaning that we contend for a salvation that is truly perfect. This is not something that can be lost. A new creation cannot become old again. The reality is that every single one of us who have been brought into saving faith in Jesus Christ will never be lost. John 10 makes this abundantly clear. But yet there are those who go to claim the name of Jesus Christ and say, ah, but his salvation is not so complete as to keep you. What a horrendous assault on the glory of Christ. It looks at him and says, his shepherd's crook is too short. God forbid such a thing. And we contend, and we contend because we love the glory of our God. We contend for glorification and our future glory. We contend not only for that, but that wonderful bodily resurrection that we look forward to, saints. We argue, and I want you to hear the folly of this for just a moment. We argue that every single individual who is buried, we argue that every single Christian who dies will be bodily raised in a new and wonderful state. The perishable will put on the imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, and they will dwell forever with Christ in this body that has, been, that has gone from mortal to immortal, gone from perishable to imperishable. We say, absolutely, that seems like folly, but Christ has spoken. The body will be raised. And this is what we contend for. And I would like for just a moment, because I think this word has in it a, a concept of struggle, of, of, of war. And I want to speak just for a moment to the men. Hear me. You make it your aim to protect your family. You know where your firearm is. If you possess one, you know how to protect or what you are going to do to protect your family, to contend so that they may be safe. Men, perish the thought that you hide behind your wife when it's time to contend for the faith. 
It is our call, it is our duty to be prepared, to wage war, to actually diligently contend for these things and to protect our families. It is the very same thing that we expect the elders of a congregation to do, to contend for the faith. This is not to say that it is not the responsibility of every Christian, but saints, we must understand, especially as those who are given to protection, it is not as though God has excluded the spiritual from that protection. We contend, we make war so as to protect those around us that we love. Finally, who then do we contend against? We contend against enemies from without. It is no surprise, is it, saint, that there be many who mock us and hate us. And I would plead with you to remember that the world is not your friend. We have played this game where the world is our friend. The world is not our friend. The world is our enemy. They hate us. They make war against us actively. They suppress the lordship of Jesus Christ even as his sun shines on them. They hate us. We understand that there are enemies from without and it should be our great aim. It should be our labor to contend against them. That is not to say that we should be hateful or spiteful to them. What we are saying is the Lord Jesus has given us a way to contend. We do not war against flesh and blood. We war in the way that he has prescribed. We make it our aim to contend for these great truths and to be prepared and ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Secondly, enemies from within, those who rise up to deceive us, which is ultimately what we find in verse four, those who have crept in. These men who have crept in must not be left unnoticed. They must be identified. And should they assault the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, they must not only be identified, but they must be removed so they do not harm the life of the true Christian in the congregation. And so we make war. We contend. We ultimately go on fighting. Now, the question can be asked, how can we be so dogmatic? I mean, sincerely. I mean, everything that I have just said, I would place in the realm of dogmatics to look at someone and say, if you don't believe this, you don't belong to Jesus. And I think it's a fair question to ask, how can we be so dogmatic on such incredibly high issues? And the answer is rather simple. God has spoken. It is not as though I am articulating a position that I formulated last night. It is the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. If you notice the text here, we have confidence. We can be dogmatic about these things because it was delivered. And it wasn't delivered by a fallible source, mind you. It was delivered by the infallible God. And so Hebrews 1.1, we would have to say that it was delivered through the final word of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We hold these truths to be just that true because Jesus has spoken. He is the final word. And since he is the final word, I am not demonstrating arrogance when I believe upon him. I'm demonstrating trust in the Savior. Further, not only do we see that the final word is Jesus Christ, but he made those things known through the writing of the apostles, through the inspiration ultimately of the Holy Scriptures, through the, uh, through the pens of the apostles. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So our dogmatics are not based upon interpretation. Our dogmatics are based in revelation. And there is no arrogance in saying God has spoken. And if I could maybe sum it up this way, because there is this phrase, horrendous phrase, that says something along the lines of, well, this faith was, was delivered from the church. Essentially, that the church is what dictated what this faith is. That is the most backward statement that has ever existed. It is not the church that makes the Word of God. It is the Word of God that makes the church. This has always been the case. There's not a single moment in redemptive history where you can show me that man was the primary initiator. I care not what traditions might come to us I care not about any of these extra biblical sources. The reality is the faith was delivered to the church. And we are right to plant our feet upon that delivered truth and saying, I will not move. 
Now, two more. Second, it was delivered once for all. We are not waiting on more revelation. We are not waiting for extra books to be canonized. Everything that was revealed to us for the, for the good, for, the, for, the, for godliness in the life of the Christian has been given to us. We are not waiting for further revelation. We're not waiting for that which is in the pages of Scripture to be all the more revealed. They have been revealed. They have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And hear me, we are not waiting for revisions. People's primary, the, the greatest errors that I see today are not that they're going back and saying we have more revelation. It is ultimately an aim to revise that which has been revealed. Saints, hear me. If it's new, it's probably heresy. Just as a general rule, to assume that the church just randomly came up upon, upon this new truth, which seemingly always has a really, a really easy way to enter into the culture because it looks just like it, that this is, this is truly what God said. No, saints, we're not waiting for more revisions. Tom Schreiner says this beautifully, simply, no supplement or corrections will be tolerated. Yes. This is the word of God that has been delivered once and for all to the saints. We are not waiting for more revelation. We are not looking for deeper truths. We are not waiting for it to be revised. God has spoken. And what a blessed joy it is to say this final one. It was delivered to the saints. It is a wonderful gift from God in our hands every single time we touch this book. Further, every single time we meditate upon the dogmatics of the Christian faith, we rejoice in knowing that this has been delivered and it has been delivered to the church to give life to the church, to embolden the church. And the reality is, as we hold this blessed faith that was once and for all delivered, it is our responsibility. And hear me, I don't want to undermine this. It is our responsibility as those who love it and view it as beautiful to contend for it. I spent a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a group of young men and I told them, just as a general rule, the primary marker of, of, of masculinity, of being a man, is not that you are able to make beautiful things. It's that you are able to hold on and to defend beautiful things. Saints, this is, this is the call of the Christian. God has delivered this faith once and for all to the saints. It is a wonderfully beautiful portrait that is absolutely uncontested in its beauty. And the joy of the Christian that flows from love of church and love of God is that I will rejoice and fellowship in the common salvation that has been given to me. And simultaneously, I will contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Let's pray together.